From Rex47, this is the AI Unveiled podcast with me, Gaurav Kotak. In this episode, I'm speaking with Sate Tsirur, the founder and CEO of Rocketium. Rocketium is an AI-driven creative ops platform sold to enterprises such as Amazon, Home Depot, and Jumi. We first discuss what exactly creative ops means and why Satej believes a unified solution can save creative teams over half their time by eliminating the need to connect disparate tools manually. Rocketium started as a gaming content startup in 2015 and pivoted multiple times before finding product market fit. Satej talks about this journey, including what worked and lessons learned along the way. We then spend the bulk of our time discussing the role of AI in the future of creative ops production and the opportunities for increased automation and intelligence. We discuss whether some of the capabilities of a creative ops platform may be unnecessary as AI automates more of the creative workflow. This was a fun episode, and I especially appreciated the entertaining analogies Satej referred to. Let's dive in. Welcome to AI Unveiled. Today, I'm speaking with Satej Sirur, founder and CEO of Rocketium, an AI-driven creative apps platform. Satej, welcome. Thanks for having me, Gaurav. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, let's take right in. Creative ops is not a term at least I had heard of until recently. What does, the, what does creative ops mean to you? Yeah, so think of creative ops as uh, a sort of assembly line, all the, the chaos and the, the sausage making, if you will, behind the scenes of all the marketing creatives that you would see. So shopping ads, ads, social media, you see a lot of creative content over there, images, videos. Behind the scenes are teams of designers, marketers, copywriters, translators, business teams, category teams, agencies. So many people are involved in that process between raising the request, approving designs, capturing all the assets that are required for uh, the designs, doing reviews of it. So all of those things are uh, what we call creative ops. And are you seeing, you know, I've heard of, you know, engineering ops, product ops, you know, um, are you seeing an individual in companies being the creative ops individual, or is it more of that, the process of creating the sausage, which is broadly described as that? No, and very interestingly, we are seeing more and more roles like this, especially when teams get larger. They, earlier, there used to be just project managers that uh, companies would hire, but now there are literally creative ops teams, especially when you have large brands with global operations, multiple countries, multiple products. What they end up having is this sort of tiered structure where you have a centrally global brand team which has best practices, maybe working with that analytics team saying what sort of creatives do perform, things like that. And then passing that sort of trickle down of uh, best practices and brand guidelines and things like that, which then the local teams are uh, uh, implementing. And a lot of them have also in-house studio teams, these uh, large brands, which create in-house studio teams, which have creative ops people managing, resourcing and things like that. So we do not realize it, but behind the scenes of all of this, a lot of complexity is there. And um, really, this is what you would expect in any large company, right? Just uh, broadly as a as a mental body, think of uh, an organization as a network and small companies, a small network, few nodes within that. And the more edges that come in, more complexity comes in. And now that you have more teams who are involved in this process, a category team that says, my product should be promoted, uh, a, a new private label gets launched. They say, no, no, my product should need to get promoted. Different uh, products have their own 
uh, profit and loss, their own uh, objectives that you might have. And then you know, there's a brand team, there's a legal team that might cover it. So as the number of teams are increasing, there's more chaos. And that is when you need more uh, specialized software to come in and do this. And uh, like you rightly pointed out, there is engineering ops. Uh, RevOps is a new field that is coming up, uh, which is between sales, marketing, customer success itself is uh, a very cross-functional team which requires its own uh, software. So as soon as you go from one designation or one department to multiple designations or multiple departments, that is when you need specialized uh, software. And that is where native operations, which earlier would have just been a way to describe just the sort of amorphous work that is happening. Now it is becoming more and more a specialized function, especially with in-house agencies coming in into large brands or agencies having dedicated creative functions within them. Yeah, makes sense. And, you know, the things about those networks, as you described it, increasing, the complexity is exponential in the increasing because you've got these many-to-many -many, uh, touch points. Great. So you've already touched upon it a little bit by the way of describing creative ops. But uh, for those who may not know, why don't you describe what Rocketeam does? So before Rocketeam comes into an organization, this process, which involves multiple teams, goes through many steps. Each of those steps has inherent complexity because of different teams who operate on different tools. They have their own metrics, their own processes and so on. So as a, a very simple example, the one team wants a set of creatives, let's say for their own website or an ad that they want to run or email that uh, they want to send. The request would be sent on an email. The assets to be used in that are coming from another team, which is a photography team or a production team as it is called. Those files are stored, let's say on a Google Drive then the designers would take that request either from an email or a request management tool from there to Adobe Creative Cloud, where they would have to make the same creative in many different versions because the, the same creative is not enough. You would not make one creative. There'd be multiple products, different audiences for whom you're making it, different A-B tests of copy and design and all of that that you would be making. So somebody manually making those in a Photoshop or similar sort of tools for review, you are again uploading those files away, Google Drive, we transfer files being sent around, feedback is given over email. That is what the, the process looks like today. So that is before Rocketeam. And what Rocketeam has built uh, for all the, the, the science fiction and uh, you know, the comic book fans uh, out there, think of it like the Infinity Stones of uh, the Avengers, right? It is <laughs> each one of these parts is a deep problem in itself and Rocketeam has solved five of those uh, areas. Working together, it's much more powerful. Um, it is request management. How do creative requests get uh, captured? What is required uh, to be made on the creator? The assets that go into it, be able to search for them, organize, tag, and so on. Then the actual design scaling, starting with one piece of design and then making multiple versions out of it. Feedback, both in terms of automated checks that you can do or manually commenting and assigning to team members and so on. And finally, analytics, which is to say, now that I've made creatives at this sort of scale for a variety of audience segments, for a variety of channels, how have they performed? So those are the five infinity stones, if you have uh, uh, that analogy. And instead of wiping half the universe, you are giving back half of that team's time, which is wasted in the inefficiency of passing things around multiple tools, or having to do work uh, manually, which software can take over. Step one is you're a unified platform instead of using these multiple horizontal point solutions and all the handoffs. 
And step two is probably adding more and more intelligence, which I'm sure we'll talk about in terms of, especially with the tailwinds of AI, especially in step number three and number four in terms of the variations and, and checks and all that, which we'll we'll talk a lot more about. Um, can you give us a sense of how many customers you serve today and how big the organization is? Yeah, of course. So we serve uh, about 30 enterprise customers today. And as Rocket Team has evolved, we have gone from, and maybe we'll talk about that uh, you know, bring back some interesting memories of our uh, evolution. But um, today we focus only on enterprises. So we serve uh, 30 enterprise uh, customers. Um, our team is 70. Uh, you know, we are growing. Uh, we are adding folks on the go-to-market side, some of our engineering folks uh, we are bringing on board as well. Um, we are also expanding our US team since uh, that is a big area of focus uh, for us as well. Um, in terms of uh, growth, now that we are working on enterprises, uh, the revenue is more than doubled in the last uh, 10 months or no, when we have uh, started focus on uh, the enterprise market. Uh, very interestingly, our net retention of revenue, that has gone from less than 100% at the time when there was funding, when winter and all the startups that we are working with had cash crunch to now working with enterprises, it's 143% of NRR that we are seeing. And uh, another thing that I'm very happy about is that last year we had about 20, 25K of uh, annual contract uh, uh, with our customers. The ACV was uh, 20, 25K, which today is about 75,000, right? Which uh, has been a big shift um, with our largest customer being over half a million dollars, right? And that has been a big switch for us, especially a company that has worked as a B2C product, which had no revenue model when we had started to something like this. That has been a big transition. Most of it has happened in the last one year alone since we shifted our focus to enterprises. Amazing. Well, congratulations on doubling ARR, tripling ACVs, and a fantastic net revenue retention. Um, focus is a beautiful thing, isn't it? So I'm glad that you figured out that enterprises, you go to market motion, um, and I'm sure a lot of what you do in terms of the company. Now, just before we move on, you mentioned we're looking to expand the US team. Maybe can you elaborate on where the rest of the team is? Yeah, so we have uh, most of our team is uh, based in Bangalore. Uh, this is where we started our operations, started working with our uh, customers over here. As we started seeing interest in uh, other areas, uh, Southeast Asia was a market where we expanded next. And then US was uh, an area we were anywhere in the US headquartered uh, company. But as we started hearing from US uh, enterprises, which had pretty much exactly the same problems, we realized that that would be a market where we should be focusing now rather than later. Nice, nice. And, you know, you started Rocket Team in 2015. And even in the last two minutes, you alluded to today we're focused on enterprise. So let's go down memory lane, right? Like back in 2015, you know, what was the idea, the inspiration to to get the company started? What was the focus then? And tell us a little bit about the journey from then to today. Yeah. And, and this, uh, I always share with people as a cautionary tale of uh, why not to be a romantic and start a startup for the pure joy of building a product, especially a software company, unless you have a clear idea of who the person is for whom you're solving, what does their day look like, and why do you want to solve it, I would highly recommend you call Rocket DM as a cautionary tale. Uh, don't be a romantic when it comes to being uh, a startup founder. So I started Rocket DM with my co-founder, who was my colleague uh, in, in the NAS company. It was a cab aggregator that sold to a competitor uh, for a, one of the largest uh, startup exits uh, in the Asian market. After which uh, I had uh, time, money, uh, and a lot of interest from investors saying, hey, what are you building next? Uh, we will want to fund it and so on. And Propitium as an idea as a game creation platform where anyone can come, make a game, share it with others, 
that was something that was in my head for a decade at that time. I said, let me start that. And we built it, impressive tech. You, you type something on our web browser and you would get a game that's playable on mobile, desktop, everywhere. And nobody wanted it except us. And uh, very quickly, we realized that uh, that sort of reading tech crunch and having an idea at people beating a path to your door, that is really, um, you know, exception rather than the role. Um, and since then, we've pivoted uh, a few times and every one of those pivots has been guided by customers who have wanted what we, what we were not doing, but what they wanted us to do 10x more than what uh, we were doing at that time, right? So as somebody who's building products and what gives us joy is actually building something that people use and it solves the problem for them. For us to see that sort of 10x benefit for the, these customers and uh, them valuing it that much, that really told us that that was the, the path to go down. And um, even now, you would think maybe last year uh, when we shifted uh, our focus to enterprise, you could call that a pivot. Because in many ways, uh, that was uh, a pivot. You can call our um, focus on the US market as a pivot because that is a pivot. But the idea is that each one of these is a, a, a decision in focus. What is really working when, when is the real opportunity? Hopefully guided by real customers and not a, a, a research report from a McKinsey or a Google. Real customers who have a real problem telling you, hey, this is what we want to solve. And not trying to predict some situation in the future. Right? So that has been our journey. Games, various other content formats uh, that we experimented, stories, videos, things like that. And for the last three and a half years, we've been in this uh, more B2B space and in the last one year, more enterprise. So an observation I have, two observations. One is it seems like your, what you call pivots, are getting smaller right? Going from games to other content and going from content to creative ops, pretty big. And now it's about US and enterprise, yeah. which you could argue is a focus, not even a pivot. And second is you at least have that common thread of content, right? I think it looks like from day one, you were like, how do we make the content creation process more efficient, whether it's for games or now for, you know, large enterprise teams uh, across marketing. Uh, fantastic. Um, so the creative production process, you've been thinking about that for at least 2015. Um, the last eight years plus, what do you think it'll look like five years from now, especially with the advent of all the technology and dare I say the word AI, right? But there's a lot going on there. What do you think it'll look yeah. like? So um, but before I go into the what will change part, I just wanted to, there's a great quote by Jeff Bezos where he says that a lot of people ask him to pontificate on the future. And one thing that he says is what guides him and the team at Amazon is what will not change in the future. Those things that do not change, you can focus on it today, make long-term investments, long-term bets, and long-term uh, innovation in that space because those things will not change. So maybe let me start with the things that will not change. Software adoption will always be tough. People do not want to use new software. They do not want to change the way they work. Customers will still want more relevant content, more visually appealing content. They will not suddenly have much more attention span, have shorter and shorter attention spans. Brands would always care about their image, getting things right, be compliant with legal guidelines and so on. There will always be more and more cost pressure, wanting to do more with less. Those are always going to be things. Teams will always want to operate more efficiently. And uh, finally, like cockroaches and tweakies, there will always be Excel, email, Google Drive, those kinds of tools will always be there. So those are things that will not change. Uh, what we change is that Today, there is not, in the creative world, there is not a lot of focus on data. 
many teams tell us that absolutely data is important. Oh, we, we make very data-oriented decisions, but that today is not in the DNA of some of these uh, teams. Uh, and I'm not saying that in a, in a judgmental kind of a way. I'm just saying that because they never thought that should I have a model doing this or this, they haven't thought of that as a decision. It feels more like, you know, aesthetically it looks pleasing or as a brand, we have always done something, they, they continue to do that. So having more data be more data oriented, automation and AI today is um, still evolving and people are thinking about what it means for them, but it's not integral to the way they work. Like I said, email, Excel, Google Drive, that runs pretty much every operation of every business. So now that will start becoming more and more uh, common. Teams will get leaner, and I again don't mean for it to say that automation AI will take up jobs, but companies have always been in that quest to run leaner and um, be more effective uh, and efficient in their uh, operations, right? Uh, and finally, with all of these tools coming in, more testing, more iterations, more experimentation, more personalized. So the way the creative goes out, what creative goes out, we get a lot more better. So th those are some things uh, that will change. Um, also, there are some cycles that happen in, in the business world where, uh, as an example, centralization versus decentralization. Suddenly, somebody will realize that, hey, you know, we've centralized too much. We are moving very slowly. Let's decentralize. Let's give power to more teams. Let's let country teams do something on their own. Let's let individual departments do something on their own. There might be reversal in some of that. Right? Similarly, there is this uh, a similar vein. There is this quest of doing something in-house versus outsourcing it to somebody. We see that in software. Uh, if somebody was, uh, a CIO was telling me recently that they are now moving away from public clouds to bringing stuff into private clouds, right? That is a trend that will happen now, again, after a few years. So some of these trends, there might be the switching. Some will have extreme swings in them, but those are some things uh, that will change. Cannot say in which direction it will go, but these are some uh, trends that we see will happen. Well put by starting with the things that don't change, although I'm still adjusting to the fact that you put Twinkies in that category, but fine, we'll move move, move on. Um, uh, you know, it, it was also interesting where you said the words leaner teams, um, and then you said efficient, and you almost said effective in the same sentence. And then you said experiment in the next sentence. And it's important for companies to experiment rapidly and run many, many more experiments, and that's correlated to kind of long-term success. Is experimentation very important to, to your process? Any marketer would say that, that yes, we want to iterate more because we do not know which message, which kind of um, uh, creative or layout or any of these decisions that we make explicitly or implicitly will work. So intuitive maybe understand that they want to experiment, but the reality of that process that I showed you, that gets in the way of it. Leaner teams, of course, everybody has been, customer after customer tells us that they've been asked to do more and they've been told you cannot hire anybody. At least some of them have been told that you could hire, go to external agencies or get consultants, but most of them have been told that you cannot even do that, right? So leaner teams, leaner and leaner teams is going to be the norm. More and more experimentation is absolutely critical for these uh, customers. Many of them only do a large part of it, but a lot more needs to be done. That is where I was talking about that data orientation, just thinking of creative not as a black box, but actually something that like Lego blocks or a jigsaw person, I can rearrange it, make something else out of it. So really thinking about it like this, experimentation is going to play a big role unless you're saying, I'm, I'm going to take one shot and I'm going to hit the bullseye. And then how do you envision changes, potential changes in the role of 
the marketing, and maybe that's demand gen, maybe it's corporate marketing, the designers, maybe in-house versus external agencies. Uh, will their roles change? Will the way they collaborate change as, as some of these changes pan out over the next five to 10 years? One is, I'm, I'm hoping some of these changes happen uh, because those are things that businesses do need for individuals to grow and be the best version of themselves. They should augment their skins with something from adjacent departments and that's something that would definitely lead to their growth. Having said that, more or less, we operate uh, in these teams the way we operated during the Mad Men days with Don Draper. There has always been silos, there have always been tools and processes and metrics that one team uses that the other team does not uh, really appreciate. Some teams cannot even look at an Excel, other teams live and breathe charts. So that is one thing that we have not seen change a lot where each of these teams are operating in their own way. Having said that, you are seeing with what I mentioned, uh, what you were asking about roles like creative operations. So I think we can see some bit of this meshing where you would see more integrated roles where strategy and making the creative that might come together, especially with AI, more data, more uh, starter ideas coming from software. There would also be maybe having analytics plus design kind of coming together or analytics plus the marketing strategy coming together. So that sort of more integrated roles can come up. So those are some things that uh, I definitely see as patterns where uh, either in-between roles might come up, like how a product manager was not even a role that used to exist before. And now somebody between a business person and a developer, that kind of role came up. So we will see a little bit of that. Let's move into your solution today, right? Um, and you talked a little bit about the five steps, right? From request intake all the way to analytics. Um, can you elaborate on today or in the near term, where do you think you're incorporating AI into the product? Where do you think the opportunity is the highest in the near term? Yeah, so the the way we have always approached this problem is like, this is the journey for these teams. This is what they do on a daily basis. Where can we come in and either create some, help them do something new that they were not able to do before or take away the pain of something by not letting them do this at all and letting software do it or they do something helping them do it more effectively. So automation was something that was always there. There were uh, a V1 of the AI services, whether translation or text-to-speech, speech-to-text, all of those things that existed before. We had always integrated with those and we had those capabilities. So with one click, you had a design in one language, you could make it in several languages. Obviously, with the caveats that translation is maybe 50-60% as good as what a person could do. Now with the big step change that has come with generative AI, we are able to do a lot more things that earlier would just sound futuristic and sci-fi to people, but now we are able to do many of those. So I'll just talk about some of those infinity stones and where uh, we do that. For example, in managing assets, Today, people are just throwing files into some storage, then manually tagging all of them 15, 16, 20 scenes and relying on human annotation and getting it right that files being named a certain way in order to have a good search result. What we are able to do with these AI monitors as well as some services that we use is much richer tagging of those creators without somebody manually going and annotating. So we just dump a whole bunch of files and now you would look for women wearing red pants or whatever uh, it is that you're searching for, quickly finding it. When it comes to the design itself, there are so many places where manual work happens where AI can come in and improve, and we have done many of those. So for example, starting with the design in one size and adapting it to multiple sizes. You do not have to go from this 
size to this size and have to redo all of that layout. So that's one area, taking your product in, in one of those versions and now replacing it with another version, making, removing the, the background of a product, coming up with more copies, translations. So those are all on the different steps, adding shadows. These are all things which were done manually, which now AI can help with. In terms of feedback, what we have is a way which we have taken inspiration from a very different world, which is software, where you have automated tests. In the world of marketing and creative uh, content, there is no automated way to check against a set of rules and best practices. We have added that now because we have all of the components of that creative in Rocket Team. You can check for that and say, you're missing a logo or your copy is too much or it's not readable, things like that we can evaluate. That is one place where uh, AI helps. And finally, with analytics, what we are able to do is take an existing creative that you are using somewhere, maybe now, six months, one year ago, made on Rocketium, not made on Rocketium, does not matter. We can pull that creative, deconstruct it, and help you understand what is within it, and help you see what choices you've been making, help you understand which of those choices work to not work, because companies do think about those kinds of things, but do not have an answer. Saying, should I show a packed shot versus show a cube? Should I show a celebrity or should I show regular people? Should I show an expert like a dentist or a doctor or should I show a family? These are all choices that they implicitly make, but they are not able to test. So those are every area, as you can see, you can enhance it with AI. And obviously that AI is not made to get it absolutely right. And you are living in this futuristic, Ronnie-like world where you are sipping a pina colada and AI is doing all of it. As an operator who's doing something, AI is helping you do that a little bit better. You still have final control where you are able to tweak it. That's at least been our approach where we we respect and honor the, the operations work that a real person is doing. And how do we help them do that better? How do we eliminate things that they do not want to do? How do we help them do new things? That is really what we focus on. That's incredible. So um, for better search by auto-tagging, right? For creating variants, whether that's different languages, right? And now the text-to-speech and translation is significantly better or different sizes. And I'm, I'm guessing it's not a dumb resize. You actually have to resize every element in the image. And then also providing the insights to figure out what your next campaign will look like and what images go into that, right? Almost of a co-pilot, if you will. Um, great. Um, you, you did talk about the human still being in the loop and in charge today, which makes sense. Do you think there's a world, especially in that last step, where it's about creating a brand new campaign from scratch, right? Do you think five years from now, it'll just be press a button, here's my brief, let's go run the campaign? Or do you think that's that's a fairy tale? Yeah, so I, I do not want to dismiss something, especially coming from a biased position of building software that might not be needed at all if tech like this comes in. Um, having said that, it's, it's hard to know where this kind of exponential technology will go. Maybe you're seeing a curve at, at this point and you think it will go this way, but maybe it goes this way. Maybe uh, some board and governance changes in certain companies might lead to another AI winter, which hopefully does not happen. But um, having said that, uh, I just want to share another quote. Uh, this one is by, by Picasso, who says, uh, who had said that uh, when art critics get together, they talk about form and function and meaning. And when artists get together, they talk about the price of turpentine. So when real <laughs> operators who are working on creative operations they are not talking about, hey, can AI do everything for me? They are just saying that, hey, I just, I need 3GB files to be sent around and it takes me hours to upload it. What what can I do about this? And they are struggling just 
sending feedback over email. So first, those are the things that we need to solve. Also, I don't think we are in a place where if you are putting these creators out on a paid channel or this is going out on the, the front page of your app or website, you want to let nobody work on it. Like I said, in Wandi, you're sitting around the geek pinup colladas and AI is doing some of this. Like we would want to live in that world where AI knows who your audience is, what they want, makes the creatives and does it. But somewhere the kind of uh, what world that we have created with SEO where bots are writing content which is read by bots and no human is actually reading all of those SEO friendly content. Uh, I don't think something like that can and should happen. I think there will still be humans in the loop, but uh, with utmost respect to their work uh, so that they are doing the, the more creative parts, the, the parts that um, come with an understanding of the customer's understanding of the business and AI and automation are doing the repetitive stuff that they would anyway rather not do. Um, and and I and I guess I, I almost posed the question in too much of a binary manner. You're right. Something that is going to go on your homepage is something where the ROI is just obvious to have humans review it. Where the thousand variations and variations can be very broad, right? Like today, I think a lot of variations change color, change text, but it could be a bit more intelligent variations in your SEM campaign um, could be completely automated, right? Um, and I'm sure that's something that you're seeing as well. Um, so that's a great explanation. Um, so you're building an end-to-end platform right, for enterprises um, with quite a lot of capabilities, AI capabilities. How do you view the trade-offs of when do you go more proprietary and when do you, you know, try to build off the shelf a little bit more? Yeah, so AI is a, a core technical skill. It is not because you can write software, you can do AI. There is, a, it's a very deep science and you require technical expertise and decades of investment in that. And uh, we realize and we do not have an ego about this that we have to build this thing in-house. We want to have that ego that we have proprietary data with us. Hundreds of thousands of creative decisions have been yeah. made. The outcomes of that are being captured over here. Different people's workflows are over here. We have access to that unique and interesting data. We are sitting on a gold mine. Maybe we are tapping into maybe some crumbs of that. Maybe a lot more needs to happen. But where possible, we use the best in breed technology that exists. It's early days right now. We still do not know who the winner is going to be. That is why we are building it in a, like how you would build with cloud services as well, in a more agnostic uh, manner where you can swap out the providers. Where we want to add more value is where customers give us proprietary data and say, hey, here is all of the copy that we have used over the past two years. Here are all of the assets and this is how we have tagged it. So don't just throw it into some LNM and ask it to find tags for you. This is the taxonomy that we have done it. These are our product categories that we want to know this product as. Can we take it, ingest it, and enhance the NNM or maybe build new models from scratch? That is what we are doing. We have proprietary data that gets generated. There are customer-given data that they would want us to trade. And then there are NNMs that we would use. So that's really how we are looking at it. We do not want to have that ego and say that if we have built our own AI, because I, I don't see a lot of value in having our own translation service or copy creating service. Really, yeah. there is no, no value in that. Okay, so you're using off-the-shelf as much as possible, right? Um, and um, for specific customers, because you're going to you know honor their privacy, right? You're able to build, because they're enterprise customers, custom either custom models or fine-tune the existing models so that it's really specific to their organization. Certainly. 
Awesome. Um, and then how do you assess whether it's your own models or third party, right? How do you assess that the accuracy is good enough to provide an awesome user experience, right? Like there has to be some level of accuracy after which the performance degrades. How do you assess that both before you release into production and maybe on a constant basis? So one good thing is that the way our customers use it is that it's very transactional way that they would use it. It won't be that, hey, we deploy this thing and now it is sitting and running and optimizing your campaigns. That is not what happens. They might click on something, they would get a translation. They might click on something, it removes a background, adds a shadow, makes another version. So right there, you would see the, the impact of something that has gone live and you are, you are able to fix that. There is always a human in the loop who's fixing it, maybe... The, the compliance module, for example, could check something and say, it looks like you have used human faces over here, look for so-and-so thing. And so they might say, this is not applicable. They would just kind of dismiss that, right? So we have built some of those checks where people are in the loop and they could always fix something, which is, again, going back to your question, could AI generate a creative uh, for you and you have to do nothing with that? Because you have a fully generated creative, even if you wanted to move something a little bit, you could not have done that. But because in our product, all of those are individual components, whether analytics or compliance or the creative, you are able to make changes on you. So that is really how we do it. Um, separately, we have ways to check the accuracy of some of these things, A, in terms of the feedback that would come from our customers as they use it, uh, and B, from um, obviously our customer success team works closely with them. So some of that uh, more touch and feel from customers saying, how are some things working? Because some things are when at a scale of hundreds of thousands of creators, when somebody is making, you cannot really know that background removal. Is it 95% accurate? Is it 90% accurate? So some of this, you cannot have metrics for it, but as we work closely with customers, we kind of get the touch and crew from them. Wonderful. And can you maybe give us a couple of examples of where your product actively seeks for feedback from the customer, right? Like, um, and then maybe if you have any example of hey, a customer clicks on this and we're actively tracking that to understand how to fine-tune the product in the future. Yeah, so we do not do the latter part, which is based on interactions and sort of implicitly trying to figure out what feedback a customer is trying to do. We make it a little more explicit. I'll give you two, three examples. One is on the compliance side. We would be, the, the kind of response that the compliance engine would give out would be, I wouldn't say non-committal, but a little bit close to that, which is, like I said, it looks like you might be missing the call to action and take a look at it. So it would still flag it, but there would be control given to the user to say that this is not relevant, I want to move. So now you're able to track which of those guidelines that were caught or an error that was passed uh, and uh, said was successful did not actually work. Right? So that is uh, one way to do it. Even things like what I mentioned, removing the background or uh, using AI, I want to fill in something on top of an object that exists or remove something that does not exist. If AI has done one version of it, you did not like it, you could do over again. You could repeat that action and it performs that a second time. So you are able to track some of those things and say that, hey, this did not work the first time, the customer had to do it the second time and so on. So those are some more explicit actions we take. Uh, the implicit one would be great that customers did some action which told us that maybe something did not work and now we are able to enhance it. But today we make it a little more explicit, let customers say that something did not work and then we can. But I think what's interesting in both your examples is you're not just saying, hey, give us feedback. You're actually 
maybe asking for explicit feedback, but it's for the benefit of the customer, right? One of my favorite features in Gmail that's been around now probably for a decade is when I say, please find attached and I forget to attach, which I'm sure has happened to everyone. And then it like reminds me, hey, you said you're attaching and that your call to action example was similar to that, reminded me of that. So I actually would have argued that they're probably more implicit, right? Because you're not explicitly saying, how are we doing? You're saying, hey, to do your job better, we we see something, you know, try again, which is which is great. And I can see how it really applies in your domain. Um, so AI, and especially generative AI, which I'm sure you're using, is computationally quite expensive. Well, it's a bit cheaper now uh, over the last month, but is that something that is an issue, something that you need to track or or, or not at the moment? It's something that we definitely need to track. Uh, these are still early days for it. Our customers have also been a little tentative about using it. They're all curious about it. Their peers, their teams, their managers are asking them, what are we doing about generative AI? So people are definitely trying it. It has not reached a stage where it has become so dominant in the usage of our product that we have to worry about cost. But there are certainly enough strategies that we could use. It's something that we are uh, we're kicking the can down the road for now, but uh, certainly this is an area that uh, requires some investment. And what I see, the pressure is significantly higher for a bottoms-up, freemium, PLG type of companies because you have a high ratio of free customers, right? Where you have enterprise customers and your largest customer is paying you half a million ACV, right? There's a lot of buffer there, right? Um, uh, but that reminds me, um, can you maybe elaborate a little bit on what your pricing model is and do you today or in the future think it can be a little bit more consumption-based? Because frankly, your value proposition is becoming a lot more consumption-based by providing variants, et cetera. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. And our pricing model is primarily com- consumption-based. Uh, if you know the model of committed consumption, where yep. we have the clarity to say that, hey, this is going to be the PRR from this customer and it allows us to deploy a team of customer success managers and our design experts and consultants to help them be as successful as they can be. Um, and if they are looking for additional things around, let's say, training models and so on, you can make that uh, investment and they can know that you are invested enough in their uh, success as well. So that is one. There is also a component of for the number of users that they would have and a platform fee. But the primary vector for growth of uh, a customer account for us is the consumption. And this consumption, by the way, is a variety of things. There could be AI credits, there could be storage, there could be the number of renders that you're doing. Renders for print content, which are very, very massive files. They work differently. Video files, especially large videos, they cost uh, different credits. We try not make it very opaque and complicated for our customers, but somewhere it is about the amount of consumption that uh, they would have. And it is something that they also understand because if they had to hire a team to do, they know how much they would have to pay them. If they have to work with an agency, you would have a retainer, but that retainer would be for some amount of insights or some amount of creative content that they would make. So it is, in a way, something, a model that they're used to and they're comfortable with. Yeah, and and the the, the beauty of committed consumption is, A, it helps you plan, but also it makes it easier for the customer to at least have a baseline of how much they're going to spend. And if they go over, do you immediately charge or is that a conversation that you have with the customer for next year or to to adjust the the, the revenue numbers? Yeah, somewhere even when we provision every customer internally, we give them a, a not higher limit so that the product does not lock them out because yeah. 
our customers are running on very tight deadlines. If they stop getting access to the product or something does not render or you're not able to upload something that's business critical for some of these customers because it's direct revenue associated with something that goes onto your website, for example, or ads that you might be running. So uh, we give them a lot more and let them run over that. We have customer success teams who might work with you. And there are times where uh, we let them go over the limit for a couple of months uh, because we know that that was a temporary spike and after that they'll come back to this. So we try to be flexible about some of these things. But if it is uh, it is a type that is risen and you stay risen, then we, we work with them on improving uh, the, the content that we might have or doing some sort of upgrade. It works the other way around as well. If, if they feel that their usage has permanently shock, then we are happy to reduce the amount that they pay us. Awesome. I won't mention the name of the company, but one of the places I worked over a decade ago, we learned a little bit of the hard way where we figured out this consumption pattern. We're a bit too strict on on it, right? Versus a relational conversation. And for enterprises, I think the approach you're taking is the most sensible approach because not only, you know, they might be 10% overage and you might actually be turning that into a 30, 40% upsell because that sparks a discussion that you can have on future planning, right? Which is what we saw as well. Um, but this has been a great overview of your, your, your capabilities, your use cases and architecture. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, your organization structure, right? Um, and specifically, how is your product engineering teams organized in terms of the AI capabilities and innovating in AI? Yeah, so I would say, um, like the five stages of grief, I, I would say we went through uh, so the, the three stages with I think a lot of teams are uh, have already gone through. They might be in different stages, but we went through those uh, three. The first was chaos from everywhere. Everybody is not doing PR, saying they have some AI capability, and you know their customers are talking about AI. So we said let's do a dedicated team for AI and. Let's pull people from here and there, let them do nothing but AI. And so that was friction. Some people were like, hey, if AI is so important, why are we doing the not important stuff? These other people are like, hey, but I have to do something that somebody else is working on. And you know, how does that? So there was that was chaotic. Uh, that did not really work uh, like for us. Very quickly, what we said is, hey, you know what? Let's put everybody back into their teams, but let them be this dedicated person in that team who's working on AI capability. So we are still working on AI across teams, but one one or two people from every one of those parts is working on it. Again, that did not work for obvious reasons because we made AI separate from our product. What we are doing now, which is a lot more integral to our roadmap, something that is working a lot better for us is to say that, which capability are we building? Are we improving an experience? Are we adding a new feature? Can AI help over here? If yes, whoever was working it picks it up. And because to your earlier point, are we building core AI capabilities or are we building on top of an existing service, enhancing it in some way, training our own models? That way we do not require deep AI experience, but That's we right. can we understand our product. We are able to use the Lego leg between blocks that a lot of companies have given us and able to build. So now AI has become more part of the DNA and just like you would use any other service. And instead of it being the sort of other thing that you have to say, you can do either this or that. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm a big fan of what I call full stack modular teams and full stack being the keyword is that if a scrum team has a customer objective to achieve, they should be staffed with the people to achieve that objective versus a separate team. Um, and I've, I've talked to a handful of companies, both on this podcast or not, and I think 
with a similar approach. The the one other thing kind of I, I've heard about that I'll just add here is that, you know, and you mentioned this earlier that, you know, we don't, we're not, uh, we don't have ego around kind of AI innovation, but we have ego or we really want to make sure we have proprietary data. And a lot of times your AI innovation is equal to your data pipeline innovation. And there's sometimes a platform team can add a lot of value because you've got all, and it's data is the DevOps frameworks and, and MLOps frameworks where you see a lot of value, but uh, it's great to hear that journey that you've been on. Um, and, and, and yeah, I think it looks great. Um, this has been fantastic, Satish. Thank you so much. Before I let you go, I want to ask you a question outside of creative ops. Um, outside of creative ops, what generative AI use cases are you most excited by? So this one is a combination of generative AI and another tech that has been very buzzy and very has a lot of potential, but has not really come to fruition, which is AR and DR. I'm personally very excited about it. With Vision Pro coming, I'm already saving up to to buy a few of those uh, <laughs> units because I think it will fundamentally change uh, the way we experience a lot of the world. Anything that we do physically is something that can be replaced or enhanced by this. Just I can never ever go to the agent thoughts, for example, in Venezuela. Right? That's a fantastic experience. I've seen it in up. I've seen enough videos, but the environmentally it's damaging for hundred thousand people to go there and. Some people just cannot afford to go there. Right? And if I were able to do that with something like a Vision Pro, and you don't have to do mapping of all of these things or having live streaming of every event that is happening. So whether it's sports, entertainment, movies, any physical world experience can be enhanced with AR, VR. I think it's going to be a phenomenal shift if it works uh, well and there are promising signs for it. And generative AI can generate a lot of those experiences so you do not have to actually record or live stream every one of those things or do 3d mapping and things like that so that would lead to very personalized experiences whether it be education travel gaming entertainment tourism i think the, the possibilities are limitless anything that goes through your eyes or ears basically i'd not touch not uh, smell or taste those two senses which is many 80 percent of the experience that we would have in this world that can be significantly enhanced and improved with uh, AR, VR, and generative AI can play a huge role in that. Yeah, that's a great point. I do think you cheated a little bit, though, because I can see a world where if that is true, generative AI in AR, VR will be part of many companies' creative ops process. So I said, pick one outside of the creative ops. I think you cheated no, a little no, no, bit no. because I can see there might be some adjacency there over time. Uh, but yeah, that's a great use case. Um, Satish, this has been a fantastic discussion. Thank you so much for your insights, uh, for a lot of the uh, historical and references that you've made, uh, very entertaining. This has been a fantastic discussion. Thank you. Thanks so much, Gaurav.